You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Ben Buckingham. Hello, everybody. Also back in the booth is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Hello. Good to be back. 
We continue Czech Timber 2021 with our second Václav Borlachek film of the month. How about some spinach? It's the story of two no-goodniks, Vladimir Menznik as Yaroslav Zamanik and Yuri Slovak as Frantacek Liska. They're arrested for trying to steal some alcohol, only to get out and get involved in some corporate espionage around a wondrous machine that can make creatures younger and can shrink them as well. However, it has a bug that causes unexpected results when the creature has recently ingested spinach. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen the film. Ben, when was the first time you saw How About a Nice Plate of Spinach, and what did you think? Uh, first time was just this week, and I have not laughed that much in at least a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months. <laughs> I roared with laughter through almost all of this. I just had so much fun with pretty much every aspect of it. And I hadn't watched any Czech films in a while, so it being a bit of a who's who of some of the best Czech film actors or best actors from best Czech films uh, felt a bit like a family reunion kind of moment for me, which definitely added to the enjoyment. And Jonathan, how about yourself? I first saw it about eight years ago, I think in about 2013. And at the time, I was preparing uh, a presentation, like a paper, uh, a rather pretentious academic paper on the crazy comedies uh, in, in Czechoslovakia and the representation of science. And I must have watched this one alongside a few others and a few others that I'd seen before. Uh, and I'm really embarrassed to say that it didn't really make much of an impression because when I came back to watch it, I realized that I'd forgotten more or less everything. And it may have just been that effect of, you know, when you're cramming and, you know, you're watching a lot of new stuff and things just pass you by. And uh, I don't really know though how I could have forgotten something this mad, really. So, uh, yeah, watching it again, I was just surprised and delighted just how crazy it is, really. I think it's really one of the grimmest of the crazy comedies, actually. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't maybe say it's my favorite one because I find it, it is kind of harsher, I think, than the others. And the characters are probably the nastiest that they ever get, really, I think, in, in, in this film. But yeah, I, I think it's one of the, uh, definitely one of the strangest ones. I'm really glad it's not just me because I was going to fully front up and say the reason I laughed my ass off is because this is a nightmare film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, I, I'm, uh, I feel that a lot lately, and uh, I'm enjoying laughing in the, the abyss a little. Yeah, I couldn't get over the ending. It was just, really? That's what you're going to do? I mean, we talked a few weeks ago about Girl on a Broomstick, another Vorlachek film. And with that, I was talking about how they took so many pains to undo everything that had been done, like every spell that Saxana had done. They took the pains to undo before she lost her powers. And in this, nothing is undone. And we end up with everything completely effed up at the end of this movie. And they, they don't even make any attempts to undo any of this stuff. I mean, they probably can when it comes to a couple of the characters. And we'll talk about that. But I'll just say it. Our main characters get eaten by a dog. I've got to say, as amazing as that ending was, I, I, I watched this with my partner and I was like, oh, 
is this going to end up on my cannibalism letterbox list? And I was like, a little bit of me was like, oh, but that was amazing. My, my partner was like, what? Loved it. We were both a thousand percent there for it. But also, what? The, that final freeze frame with the dog's tongue. Ah! And I love that they set it up right from the beginning that we have this woman visiting this man and the dog stealing food out of the man's bag. And sure enough, that's where we're going to go at the end of this film. It's so smart that they do that. I managed to get hold of Vorlicek's uh, memoir, and he talks about each of the films that he did. And, and uh, I think he does wonder like whether the audience at the time actually got the ending. He says that, you know, maybe people thought that they'd actually survive. So I think even for him, it was probably, uh, he probably couldn't believe that people could have accepted that ending. And I think there is the moment, isn't there, where you, you know, you wonder, is that really what's happened? And then you think, well, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Well, when the guy says, did you hear somebody say help? Yeah, my, my partner, she's seen some Czech films, but not a huge amount. And so as we were sort of watching, I was like explaining little bits and pieces of culture and things and saying, you know, oh, yeah, they're an intense people who uh, very much just get on with things. And that's where some of their best comedies come from, because it is just like, yeah, this is a living hell. <laughs> get on with it. But I did also say that, oh, well, this is, you know, 1977. This is a bit later on, you know, the communists had cracked down a bit. So it is from when they were, like, having to be a bit nicer. Like, I'm going to go eat my words with some spinach now. There's a funny story, too, about the original ending, or, or rather one of the endings that was submitted. And this is just completely crazy how different it was. And I think this was when... Maxarek was writing the treatment so I think it was like the second draft of the the original treatment and apparently the ending in that version it would have ended with I think it was Lishka the Yerzy Sovak character and then I think it was Yorai Hertz's character and the other guy the professor who is also involved in the uh, in the stealing and it ended with them at a, like a pioneer camp you know the camp that basically the communist Boy Scouts, and then Lishka just gives this very inspiring speech about how, you know, we mustn't steal, we must, uh, you know, uh, cult, you know, we must make the world safe and make the world good for the youth of tomorrow. And it was this really like inspiring, you know, sort of socialist realist type of speech. And, uh, I mean, I think the suggestion that has been made about this is that this was just thrown in really as a kind of a decoy, really. And then, you know, they just completely scrapped that and then just went for this kind of, you know, swifty and horrible ending instead. <laughs> I was reminded a lot while watching this. I know that this show was based on the honeymooners, but it really felt more cartoonish. So it really reminded me a lot of the Flintstones. This whole idea of these two guys who are trying to get ahead and they are not the brightest people in the world and they end up being duped by somebody who's a lot smarter. And in this case, it's Uri Hertz as uh, Natusil, I think his name is. And he just pulls the wool over their eyes completely. He doesn't necessarily screw them over too bad when it comes to the opening, when they're trying to steal some alcohol and the guy who is in the plant has a light blue coat. And unfortunately he switches coats with, with the supervisor. So they go right to the supervisor and they're like, Hey, let's get that alcohol from you. And, you know, basically steal it from the factory. He's like, sure, sure. No problem. And just leads them right into a room filled with police. It's like, Okay, 
great. All of these misadventures just, and then I guess it helped too that Liska's wife's name is Vilmer. So I'm like, okay. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't think about that. <laughs> there is that positive subtext, a good communist message, but it is really warped. And I think there is something in that, that it is that the world is full of bizarre accidents that screw you over and leave you in a bad place. So if everybody else is being bad to each other as well, it'll probably generally be bad. You do get that impression that this is just a world of just omnipresent stealing, isn't it? And and just petty corruption. And I think that's true about like the difference between the you know the Uri Hertz character and the two main characters, because I think they are just the sort of petty the sort of small friar who do this petty stealing. And there's that famous line, uh, which I've often heard from Czech people of a certain age, uh, you know, that if you don't steal from work or if you don't steal, you, you, you rob your family. And that's very kind of, uh, you know, widely known maxim really of this period. And I think this is kind of what they're doing, isn't it? They're, they're basically, you know, making a bit of extra money, stealing a bit to put some more food on the table. Whereas I think like the Hertz character is probably meant to be a bit more of a negative figure, isn't he? I think he's a little bit more westernized. He's a bit dandyish. And he has that amazing, there's that amazing detail of the, the long fingernail, isn't there? Which I wonder if, uh, I wonder if Uri Hertz added that himself because it seems like the kind of thing he would do. But it's just, I think this little touch that tells you that this is a bit more of a, uh, yeah, a bit more of a villain somehow, a bit more of a, of a scheming and, uh, you know, as I say, westernized figure, I think, compared with the, the two protagonists. Pretty much everything they steal is, uh, so we say non-essentials. It's like alcohol and cream cakes and, you know, things like that. They're not, they're not stealing bread to feed their family or anything like that. It is these kind of things which they could sell for more money to, to help their family. But at no point is their stealing ever presented as anything Robin Hood-like, really. <laughs> I mean, they've got that whole idea of, of buying the van like that is going to help them out significantly if they have this delivery van. So now they can start making deliveries for bicycle thief. criminals or other people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but at the same time, there's, there's that whole moment where, because it's Liska's birthday the day after this movie starts, and he comes home and he's gotten some money and he brings home all these canned goods. And his family's like, oh, we'll save these and give them to dad for his birthday. And it was so strange to me. I'm like, is that what you're doing? You're giving your father canned goods for his birthday? That Back then, that canned fruit would have been a pretty big delicacy. <laughs> yeah. I loved how much this didn't present a lot of the general signifiers of communism and hardness of life. Like, it only can't, it really pops up when the police come in and the occasional drop of the word comrade. Otherwise, everything presented as if, no, this is just... Everyday life, as if it's anywhere in the world. It's just normal. We're all happy. Everything's fantastic. But there are those little bits that are like, yeah, this is just canned fruit. And it is kind of a present. And even that it's his birthday the next day kind of gives that idea of like living day to day. That it's like, we, you, we would think, why would you save that for, you're saying you'll save it for tomorrow? What? But it's like, yeah, in their world, that tomorrow can be a long way away. There's a lot to do with facades, obviously, the the cosmetic aspect of it. But I thought of, as I was thinking about it, I thought it was like, mm, it's not quite facades. It's something about there being 
duality in everyday life and we're presented and told and educated that this duality is separate. But this film is these dualities just keep bleeding into each other. You've obviously got young and old. You've got crime and order. Old and young. Private and public is the big one here because it is who they present to society and then the undercans dealing, moving this around, being that, etc., etc. There's a lot of that slippage between those positions and it uh, really pushes back against the idea that we can be, anything can be black and white in a very unusual, like some, like some, some ways very straightforward way, but then throwing in like, you know, mini cows and shit, and it's just like, oh, yeah, no. In relation to the cow, the cow just took me straight back to who wants to kill Jesse, and it's interesting that, you know, you have another cow being used as a, a test subject, don't you, for this, uh, you know, strange machine. And uh, I think the cow is an interesting... Uh, you know, it's an interesting uh, animal to use, isn't it, I think, as a kind of test object, because I think it's related to these ideas of, you know, productivity and, you know, producing abundance. So, you know, you could see a possible connection, I think, between the function of all these machines that you see in a film like this or that you see in Jesse and this ideal of productivity uh, and, you know, ultimately a kind of utopia in which, you know, technology serves you. But of course, it never actually works out like that. There's always some flaw that is unforeseen. The cannibalism aspect that it almost tilts into at a couple of points, uh, you know, the underlying thing that I've we talked about on Motel Hell, Mike, is that processes of objectification. And that's still very present here. And as I thought of it, it's present in a lot of Czech films. I remember in um, the shop on Main Street when he's talking about all the things that he's like glues and equipment are made from and how they're made from horses and bits of animal and things like this. And it's how these living things become objects and tools and, you know, of course, set against the backdrop of the Nazis and the concentration camps has a pretty huge significance. And here it's, I think it still has a lot of that same intensity. And there is definitely, yeah, a very deliberate connection between these cattle and people, and, you know, even the baby being switched out for the lamb being cooked. You know, on the surface, it's it, as we said, it's, it's it appears to be all nice and happy, fun film, but it's actually presenting an absolute hell when you consider the idea that if this equipment is perfected, then these perfect workers live their whole life and do everything and jump through all the hoops, and they suddenly they don't get their pension, they don't get to grow old. They're rejuvenated and forced to live and work under capitalism or communism or whichever ism again, forever and ever. Which is lost on me the first few times I watch it. This whole idea of like, okay, why are they rejuvenating this cow? And then finally it comes back to me of like, oh, you just, the cow is old, make it young, you get more milk. Okay, we're off to the races. And yeah, it is. It's a, it's a hellscape as far as like, okay, and then this cow can never die. She's always there being milked for the rest of her life. And it's just, and her life goes on forever. Yeah, it, it took me a little bit to get that. It also took me a little bit to get this whole idea of the Natusel character 
I thought anyway, he wanted to make one of these machines. He's having these two guys steal pieces and parts off of the legitimate machine, we'll call it, so he can make his own machine. I thought that he was going to be like selling these pieces and parts to some other government so they could do their thing. But no, he wants it because he runs a beauty salon and wants to offer rejuvenation treatments. And the second time that I watched that, it finally dawned on me what he was doing. And I'm like, oh, my God, I, it, it's so simple and so funny that he just wants to be able to make people look younger. And he knows that he will make thousands and thousands, if not millions of dollars by being able to make old people look young. Humans will always need food and humans will always want to stroke their own egos. It throws quite a lot of ideas at you, doesn't it? And I think that's probably why I think for me, too, I didn't maybe pick up as much on, you know, what they were doing with the cow and the way that this is tied, I guess, to, you know, rejuvenating workers, because it's almost like the film, you know, entertains that idea very subtly. And then it diverts you to the Natushil character and what he's up to, which I guess is associated much more with a kind of westernized or I guess a sort of capitalist mentality, isn't it, of attracting wealthy foreigners, you know, as you say, stroking their egos. And it's almost like the film is slightly kind of, uh, you know, hiding that initial sort of comment on, you know, the socialist uh, system. There was a, quite a few things in as I was making my notes watching it that I wrote down as little ha-ha joke comments. And then as I looked at my notes, I was like, oh, actually, oh, 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 my heart hurts a little right now. <laughs> <laughs> as the joke sort of started to like fade in the background and you actually get it. Uh, but what are the bits, what are my little notes that are, was um, the dangers of local produce? Because they keep saying, no, we want a, we want something local. We don't want any of this imported thing or that. Or We can have Kung Pao anywhere. We want something local. And so I was like, oh, the dangers of local produce. And I was like, oh, nah, actually, it's probably the destabilizing power of cultural traditions and structures against invading forces. Little xenophobia thrown in for good measure. Well, it, I don't know about a xenophobia because we don't have any communists, so to speak, or Russians. We have Spaniards who were, of course one of the great colonizers and erasers of culture. So that was uh, that was also another little like, oh, yep, nice one. How long did these guys spend writing this script and cramming every single little thing into it? I kind of got a similar sense of, you know, the, the, the use of the spinach. Uh, I'm not quite clear, like in my own mind, you know, what that stands for. But I think spinach is a very interesting choice, isn't it? Because, I mean, I'm not sure if it has that same association in in Czech culture that it does in, say, like in British culture or American culture or Australian culture, I guess, where it's kind of like a, a punishment, isn't it, for the child, you know, for the naughty child. And I wonder if there is that sense of there is a kind of moral retribution in the fact that the spinach is this sort of agent of chaos because it's really punishing them for their, you know, their stealing. Well, I saw that as uh, anti-American because for me, spinach is Popeye, and Popeye gets strong off spinach, and Popeye is the Navy. Spinach can undo all of the things that they meant to do. <laughs> so we should probably say the machine in this movie is very uneven as far as what it can do and how quickly things take. When we see the cow get initially treated and the cow's just supposed to rejuvenate basically go back to a calf but there's a screw up and the cow shrinks and they have to ask the question 
has this cow eaten spinach lately? Because spinach is the thing that will throw off and you never know what the result is going to be if you eat spinach afterwards or beforehand. So that becomes this whole thing of like, we will eat spinach either unknowingly and screw something up, or we will go out and devour spinach in order to affect the results of this machine. And of course, our Fred and Barney characters are right there getting screwed up by this machine and end up being converted into children. And it's kind of funny because we, like I said, we just talked about Girl on a Broomstick, which has this whole thing of these three bullies where they keep their voices even when they become other things, like they become three bishops at one point, or they become three truck drivers. And then here we have these two guys and and a third person, this uh, uh, Donna Lopez, she keeps her voice when she becomes a baby and is a baby throughout most of the film. And then these two guys keep their voices, whether they're young or old. And of course, it's just them in old age makeup when they turn old. None of those things are instantaneous. None of those transformations. Those are a, we'll sleep overnight and wake up in the morning and see what happens. So yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the machine working one way in one scene and one way in another. And also it feels very much like, oh, you were around the machine. So it's the radiation that did this to you rather than you actually were subjected to it directly. Yeah, I think that if anybody in that room had eaten spinach, then they would have had something happen to them in that early scene. And I I think this is one of the things that actually, for me, pushes this a little bit more towards horror than sci-fi because, you know, traditionally sci-fi is more not necessarily optimistic or positive, but it's more about constructing or examining, exploring whereas horror is about discord and abjection and things not being how they're meant to be, things falling apart, things not making sense. And this is even the fact that the machine is a bit erratic. Uh, it works very well with that. And it actually ties into this. As I, as I was watching the film, it was like, oh, you know, early on I'm like, oh, this feels a bit Jacques Tati-esque when they're going into the beauty salon and the door that keeps trapping them and sliding doors. But then as it went, I was like, oh, no, this is the party, but not with all the stuff that's wrong with the party. (laughs) Like, this is like somebody outside of it going, yeah, this is hilarious, but Americans suck. I'm going to make the party and make it the horror film that it should be with the same kind of revolving doors madness of modernity and, you know, crazy kitchen wait stuff and very rich guests and foreigners and even Hertz feels like you were saying like the, the little pinky, like he feels like he's channeling Peter Sellers a little bit in part in the way he moves and talks. I was like, yeah, this, I think that's actually maybe more what this feels like a response to for me. In regard to that, actually Hertz, uh, apparently did used to be told a lot, uh, that he looked like Peter Sellers. And at one point, uh, at one point, I guess before he became the, the, you know, known as the sort of the best or the greatest Czech or Slovak horror director, he was actually planning to make sort of Jacques Tati's comedies as a writer, as, as a director and actor. And there's kind of like a, a sense of that in the second film that he did. So I think that's very much a conscious illusion, I think, or a conscious, uh, choice on his part. And yeah, I wonder how much he added to that performance. Oh, he does comedy just as well as he ever did horror as a director. I have remarked before how much I love his look, and it's just so on display here. And this whole thing when he is, you know, being this 
very villainous businessman, but then has to be so nice to the customers because it's a beauty salon. It's like, oh, that's pretty cool. Talk about duplicity. There's a lovely moment that I noticed watching it again um, when the policeman comes in and, and hurts his initial responses to sort of just stroke his face. Now, what can I do for you as though he's a customer? And it's just a lovely, subtle little touch, which again, I mean, he, I don't know if he added that, but it's just a lovely little moment. I'm very curious about where these machines are, or the, the machine versus Hertz's uh, beauty salon versus the restaurant that seems to serve so much spinach throughout the day. Are they all in a mall someplace or where is this that they can walk from one location to the next without any bother whatsoever? And it feels very much like they're in a, all in the same location. That's true. Yeah. Cause it's a, it's a hotel, I think, isn't it? The Imperial, right. hotel, which is an interesting, interesting choice of name in itself, I guess. And I got that the, the salon and the restaurant are together. But as you say, yeah, I, I also had that little confusion about where the, the laboratory is. Is this, yes, is it part of a complex? And they do just seem to kind of slide between one location and another, don't they? Quite easily. Joe Dante definitely lifted for Gremlins 2. Christopher Lee's in that complex somewhere experimenting. What if there was like a brainy gremlin? <laughs> a brainy gremlin. You talking about a gremlin with glasses who could talk and sing New York, New York? That's brilliant. It's in the movie done. And the miniaturization is interesting, isn't it? Because that is kind of just one of those, not exactly arbitrary, but it's sort of thrown in there, isn't it? And it's another element that's just added to kind of, you know, make things even more dystopian and even more unpleasant and... There was a project that Matt Sarek was working on, I think, in the 60s called, uh, initially called Plan Gulliver. And, uh, apparently that used that motif quite a lot of miniaturization. And I think the idea in that was that it was about a government that was going to miniaturize soldiers so that they could sort of transport them easily across borders. And I think this was one of those projects in the 60s that sort of fell apart and, I think it's been suggested that he, he reworks some of that story into this one. So I guess that would explain why that, you know, the, the miniaturization is, is kind of thrown in a bit, isn't it, really? It's not the sort of central conceit, but it's just added in as an extra twist, really. I think there is a lot of American, I don't know if prestige is the right term quite, but uh, like I said, I feel like that there is some stuff in there that is very inspired by something like The Party and... Definitely Jack Arnold's you know, shrinking, Incredible Shrinking Man. But even like down to that, that when they're shrunk, the first thing they say is, oh, at least it's not the cat. One of the more, more famous ones, which I love because, you know, cat is not necessarily man's best friend. So you worry about the cat and then get eaten by the dog. And we've touched on this just briefly, but I love how shortly into this film, suddenly we're introduced to basically a Mexican telenovela uh, <laughs> happening here with this countess who's going to get married to this guy who seems like he's kind of underhanded. And then her brother comes in and he's played by Peter Costa, who we talked a lot about. Um, he played, I think, altogether three roles because he was both the two brothers plus the other brother that was like another time loop version of him from uh, Tomorrow I Will Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea. And him with that little mustache and the arched eyebrow. And just <laughs> every time he's on screen, they have like the little flamenco guitar strum that happens. 
he is incredible in this role and he's incredibly dastardly too this whole thing of like once his sister gets euthanized too much and becomes a baby okay yeah we'll just swap out the babies she'll never become a, a grown woman again basically because he wants her fortune it's such a testament to the performances in this film that even when it gets as messed up and absurd as it does, they just, it never skips a beat. All of them just move along as this is normal. I mean, half my notes are just Don Carlos, Love Heart and Spanish Guitar. I'm a sucker for films that have people who don't take drugs taking drugs, and I'm a sucker for uh, Spanish stereotypes with Spanish guitar playing in their entrances. So uh, this film, at least for half of that, I was just like, oh, but even that, they, 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 so many films just like people just throw out and they're like, oh yeah, we're just lazy using that. But the, when, when the uh, groom to be of uh, Donald Lopez, when he is found out to possibly not be an honorable man and his best men say, you're, you're dead to us. And they cut to him and the Spanish guitar kicks in again. It was just, <laughs> just, I just wanted to like do like Mexican wave, everyone. Come on. That was absolutely one of my favorite moments that I've seen in the film this year. It was just that as, as you said earlier, like there's so many things that they set up. And then when they bring them back around, they, they bring them down and back around in a way that you just, don't quite expect and it it just nails it and sometimes it's for like just fun like that most of the time it's more like oh god what's gonna happen because of that this whole thing of him with the button in his soup that i mean it's such a silly joke just that there's this overweight guy who's always at the restaurant when he's at the restaurant and he stretches and off comes the button <laughs> and it starts up this whole weird rivalry hatred between Don Carlos and the chef at the hotel. Ah, oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. And just how apoplectic the chef becomes. <laughs> it's that's fantastic. My own, that's my only complaint about this film is the sh- we needed more of the chef and Don, uh, Don Carlos together. But how much did he look like Clifton Collins Jr.? I was looking at him going, oh, my God, it, like dead ringer in some shots. And uh, I can't, again, I'm going to blank his name, but the groom-to-be, Jim Broadbent. It took about an hour into it, and my brain suddenly went, oh, it's Jim Broadbent. It did take me a while to realize that it's Joseph Summer as well, because, I mean, he, he he does look sort of convincingly Latin. I think his name is Pereira too, isn't it? And I, that was another thing that was kind of strange that they just say South America. Even they themselves refer to themselves as South American. It's really not any more specific than that, is it? And I think his name is Pereira, which I think is Portuguese, isn't it? Or Brazilian. And then the others have like sort of Spanish sounding names and it's just all sort of mixed up, isn't it really? And I believe there was an attempt at one point to make this film a co-production. And I think there was some interest in trying to cast... I guess it would have been like Spanish or Latin American actors in some of the, the roles. But it, it, when, it, when you think of it, it just wouldn't be the same, would it? I think it's funny the fact that you, know, you do have these, you know, very recognizable, you know, very ubiquitous Czech actors, because I guess it's just another element of that multiplicity of identities, isn't it? That, you know, you know who these people are, but, you know, it's just funny seeing them with these, you know, these, you know, dyed black hair and the mascara. And, you know, it just adds another kind of like little twist to it, I think. Yeah, especially the yeah, that the hollowness of them and that the yeah, you see we already know that Don Carlos is not great before we meet him. So when he turns up looking as artificial and ridiculous as he does, it's like, Yep, that's him. <laughs> <laughs> we 
with the Spanish guitar. <laughs> if, if that moustache were any longer, he would twirl it, wouldn't he, I think? <laughs> Joseph Summer is almost unrecognizable in this, because, yeah, he's one of these other faces where you've seen him so many times. But, yeah, with that, I guess it's a wig or maybe just his hair dyed black and that mustache. And he seems to have very sunken eyes in this one. He reminded me a little bit of like a, like a Robert Goulet gone to seed kind of thing. He just, you know, that artificiality about him. But yeah, I love how their story intersects with the other story. And then uh, Donna Isabella ends up uh, being rejuvenated, ends up being a baby, a baby that can talk, which is a nice, uh, this isn't the right thing to have happen kind of like when the our two main characters end up being taken down to teenager preteen type era uh, age and i do especially like when they go into uh liska's house and they end up having to spend the night there but of course you know they spend the night with the children and the daughter who keeps inviting uh <laughs> the men's character into her bed and he's just like oh and her father's like, I- I'm not going to be a teenage grandfather. <laughs> There's so many of those sort of moments, aren't there, as well? Like like the one about Donna Isabella becomes a baby. And uh, uh, I think it's the guy from the embassy who says, well, you know, at least you know that your bride will be a virgin. And yes. I think in my notes, I just had, I think it was just like a few times where I put, you know, you couldn't do that now. You know, you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't say that, would you now? <laughs> they handle it perfectly because both my partner and I were like, just like shuddered visibly when he said that, but so do the other characters on screen. So it was like, good, thank you. Yes. Nobody was okay with that line. <laughs> but I did have one terrible note that I wrote down that I was like, this is a really, really bad uh, reference. And I, it's probably a little bit more last podcast than the left than projection booth. But after that line, I was like, yep, it's going in because uh, Don Carlos is a firm believer in uh, Zanny the Nanny. Yeah, I don't get it. Sorry. Terrible Casey Anthony reference there. But anyway, because the first thing Don Carlos does is dope up baby Donna Donna Lopez with a sleeping potion. (laughs) He just, like, grabs the baby and just starts pouring it down her throat. And I'm like, hey, Casey Anthony. Yeah. Oh, I just died a little inside. And it's very nice, the coincidence that uh, we have uh, the Mensa character as the young boy with the youngest daughter of Liska and ends up pushing her in her baby carriage and then just abandoning her so he can run inside (laughs) and have a conversation. (laughs) But it makes it perfect. So then Don Carlos can just exchange those babies. And he does, I think it, I think it was he that went to, he, as soon as, uh, as the baby, uh, Donna Lopez asked for a cigar, he immediately goes to get one for her. So. <laughs> <laughs> and the other guy's like, what, what? <laughs> Stop. No. <laughs> Pre-baby Herman, the <laughs> cigar smoking baby. I- <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it took me a minute to go, hang on. Oh, that's uh, Eva Yanzrova from Morgiana. Even before, like, she really got to let loose playing the dual characters of her scientifically aged daughter and herself, I was already like... I think this is the best performance in this film and I was loving every second when her husband and his friend first come back as children and she's trying to introduce them as these orphans they've adopted and there's this laugh she gives which is just so perfect. It's just 
the only way to describe that brief little sharp laugh is cracked. You just really want to be like, sit down, here's a cup of tea, It'll, it might be okay. Talk about unrecognizable. Yeah, it took me until I looked at the credits again going, wait a second, that's her? Really? And that was her in both of those roles? I mean, it makes sense that she plays both the mother and the aged daughter. And like, there were times where I was like, oh, they look very similar. So when everybody, um, well, when she gets her clothes ripped off by that door, the door joke finally pays off and she gets her clothes ripped off and she's in that slip. So she gets mistaken for her aged daughter who's wearing a very similar slip. I was like, okay, yeah, I guess they do look kind of similar, but they're the same person, Mike, you idiot. That kind of falls back on some sort of weird daisies thing because as her aged daughter, she's got a little bit of a look of the group of girls from uh, the light of the blonde from daisies. And of course she's going crazy running around as this baby where, where everybody else, when they become young, keeps their full identity and knowledge and memories. Of course, when a baby gets upped into an adult, they're still just the baby. And so there's her running through the hotel, destroying the place just to get to the cream cakes and whatever else she can get. And it's just chaos. And it is very, very shot a little similarly to some of the scenes in Daisies, which I think they shared an editor with, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, so then you have, of course, you know, her mother stepping into this looking exactly like her deranged daughter who has just completely destroyed the place and, uh, bedlam ensues for the 17th time in this film. It's cleverly set up as well, isn't it? Because I think there is a line where when she's playing the mother, she says, Oh, you know, the, the when she, when she's, uh, you know, when the baby disappears, she's, Oh, you know, she was so much like me. So it's, it's kind of just set up enough that that has a kind of logic that she, you know, it's the same actress. And, uh, I think the fact that she's in a, in a slip too, it gives it an edge, doesn't it really? And, and there are those references to the fact that, you know, she's not, she doesn't have any inhibitions and there is this weird kind of uncomfortable element to the whole thing, isn't there? And, I mean, it reminds me of the fact that, I mean, one of the the critics, one of the Czech critics who reviewed it, I mean, did actually say that it was a lascivious film, apparently. So I, w- I wonder if that was the moment that they were thinking of. <laughs> oh, there's, there's, there's a couple of bits. I mean, for, for us now, very, very little. But the, the stuff with the with him and his possible, with the, I don't remember which one it was, but the woman who has the possibly pregnant mistress, fiance who goes off with some other guy the minute he turns into a child i mean kind of understandably but still also yeah and i don't know if she's really pregnant or not it feels like a fake out yeah that's uh, there's so much of this that is is, is how, yeah, how do you trust anything but even that you so much of um um Ivo Yanarova's uh, performance is that you know she's trying to keep things in control she's trying to keep things normal she's trying to deal with this problem husband and this and everything so once that crowd starts coming at her and she starts swinging that handbag that left like that's one of those great character expansion development kind of moments for that you don't have to do with words you can just see that she has had it she is like it doesn't matter how insane this is she is going through that crowd from what i've read i think that Borlicek says that he didn't even really give her much direction i think in all of those you know in in the scenes in the restaurant and uh i think he was saying initially like i'm going to try and coach you you know as to you know how a baby acts and she says well you know like i've got i've got a daughter i've got my own kid i know how a baby acts and then she just she just went with it i think and you know no choreography no blocking it was just all her i think (laughs) 
amazing. It is a horrific idea, this taking uh, an infant and putting that brain into an adult female. And, mm. it, and yeah, she portrays it so well, especially when she gets up and starts walking. And it feels very much like, oh, I'm walking for the first time or I've just learned how to walk as an infant. And now I have these much longer, bigger legs that I'm going to go around on. Yeah, I, I think that it's absolutely a brilliant performance and just a really disturbing idea. Because that's something, obviously, we've been having to deal with pretty solidly for the last 20 years, that kids are growing up a hell of a lot quicker. And it's like, this is kind of a, it's very much a metaphor for that. You know, being slammed into a way of existing that you're perhaps not prepared for. One of my little silly joke notes that is also not a joke was um, Marx famously once wrote, all that is solid melts into babies. Yeah, I'm on a roll for bad jokes today. But yeah, it's true. They know Marx wrote that all that is solid melts into air, and that's modernity, that it all comes apart, all the traditions, all the structures, all the things that we knew. And that's it's there as much for that older generation as it is for the younger generation in this film. It's just all not familiar, but scarily so at the same time. <laughs> They do a great job of balancing all of these different storylines because we've got that whole thing happening at the hotel and we've got the, by this time, our two main characters have gone from children now into old men and their whole story as far as like now they're old and trying to get around and at least it's a little easier to cover for that than it is for these two children with men's voices. <laughs> <laughs> Those kids were amazing, by the way. I just got to say, they the way they match the, the, the both of them, the voice of the actors and the kids performing physically was just spot on. And the, and the appearance, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to imagine how you could get a kid that that looks like Vladimir Menshik, but I think they they get as close as you could possibly get. Uh, I think that Volichek's idea initially was to get photos of. Sovak and Menshik when they were, when they were children and then to try and match that. But apparently they didn't look as children. They didn't look like they did as adults. So then I think they just went for kids that looked like the adult versions of Menshik and Sovak. And I mean, they, they really found close matches, I think, didn't they? Especially the Menshik, who apparently I think for quite a long time after that was referred to by people as little Menshik. So, which is <laughs> <laughs> not, not a bad thing to be called, I guess. <laughs> And they give him the toothpick as well, don't they, I think? Or is it a match, I think, to put in his yeah, mouth, which is kind of right. But that, yeah, that's one is... of those little great pieces of character design that works on multiple levels because it does make that connection of to the older character, you know, one tiny little item that just builds this whole connection. It's, it's, it's yeah, beautifully done. Of course, we get all of those great, you know, mistaken identity or, you know, this doesn't make sense kind of moments like – the baby who is now turned into the woman and Don, uh, what's his, her, her fiance, well, <laughs> Isabella's fiance in there with this quote unquote other woman. Mm -hmm. So it looks like they're sleeping together or you get, uh, the young Mesnick coming in and, uh, like you said, uh, the wife slash girlfriend, I guess she's the girlfriend has, uh, suddenly decided, well, if you're a boy, I'm going to find somebody else. And when he busts in, it's just like, she's pregnant with my baby. And it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> this little boy accusing her of that. 
There's something really interesting as well in relation to the attitude to children, isn't there? I think that, uh, you know, the, the fact that, you know, you have these, uh, you know, sort of adults in children's bodies, uh, you know, I think it's something you can relate to, I guess, the way that as a society, this was in some ways kind of, uh, an infantilized society in the sense that I guess people uh, or the authorities, you know, sort of talk down to people. And I don't quite know where I'm going with this, but I think there is a sort of identification of, you know, the sort of average citizen and the way they're treating, treated with the way that kids are treated. Because I mean, it's interesting when they are sent to that children's home, it's really just basically so they can be kept somewhere, you know, before they go to jail. And it's like that identification between the children's home and the jail and it's as though that you know the way that kids are treated is in this kind of didactic authoritarian way and as though it's like kind of i don't know matching that with you know the the uh, like an adult institution and i don't know i just get this commentary somehow about this equation between i don't know authoritarian attitudes to children and authoritarian attitudes to adults i don't know if i'm just completely barking up a tree here but (laughs) I have like half a thought that doesn't really go anywhere that relates to that. So maybe I have the other half of your thought. They are essentially the same at every age. There's nowhere for them to grow or develop. It's kind of why it's not an unhappy ending because like, yeah, oh, well, the dog got to feed because they're just like the only time they ever get praised by anybody is by the principal. who's <laughs> like very impressed by this very mature young lad. <laughs> um, but otherwise it's like it, when they're kids, when they're their age, when they're old, man, they're all just, they're just, you know, they're cut loose from everything. They have all these connections, but they don't really seem to mean much and they don't hold them to anything at all. I mean, it's interesting that the cops play such a prominent role in here because normally it's like there are no police in some of these films or the police are just there as a threat. And, you know, you expect when the cops come in at one point in this movie, which is fairly early on, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's it. Everything will be set right now. And no, they don't, they're completely ineffective. They don't do anything either way as far as helping people or hurting people. They just kind of stop the action for a little bit and then it picks up and moves into a different gear rather than the cops having any sort of real effect on what's going on with the story. Yeah, they, they feel a bit more like note keepers or cleaners coming along afterwards and then going, ah, look, let's just call a halt to this. It is what it is now. Move on. I guess it's a kind of like a containment or a resolution, like in moral terms, isn't it? At the end where, you know, it's like, this is your bed. You have to lie in it. And, you know, this is the consequences of your actions. But yeah, beyond that, there's no actual effort to rectify it. And I mean, some of those characters are innocent. I mean, it's not like they deserve to be, you know, sort of trapped in these circumstances. And yeah, it does really just leave it as it was. There's no real attempt to, you know, right any of the wrongs is there at the end. A couple of weekends ago, uh, my partner and I just went on like a weird right-wing Americana tangent through like the Agfa drug stories collection and Death Wish 3 and I can't remember what the other ones, but it was just like even when we stopped watching those films, I think we had about eight films in a row out of America in the 70s and 80s where the cops were either just ineffectual, lazy or corrupt. And it was just every single film was that. And this kind of does that without being obvious about it in a way that could be judged as anti-authoritarian. Uh, instead, it is just like, eh, too much paperwork. 
I like the fact that one of the cops is played by, um, I think it's Jan Kraus. I think there's, there's two Krauses, there's Jan Kraus and Evan Kraus, and I always get them confused, but it's the one where the two kids slash adults are asking for directions. And that's, uh, yeah, I think Jan Kraus is one of those cops. And apparently he was always in trouble with the law himself. He was basically a kind of a, a bit of a rebel and re- apparently relished the chance to play a cop. So I think in that casting choice, there is a little bit of a subversive twist there because yeah, he himself was really kind of a reprobate, I think, when he was a young man. Is he the guy with the very noticeable nose? Yeah, that's he's the, the guy he- in food. I was like, oh, my God, he's in food. Lost my shit completely. I love food. I've watched Jan Spunkmeyer's food way too many times. And I better just check. Yep, there it is, food. It might be him or it might be the brother, because I know the brother is in the... I think it's Ivan Kraus who's the brother, and I think he's in the flat. So I- no, it's Jan Kraus. You're right. It's Jan Kraus, and he was in food. Yeah, I would recognize that nose anywhere. That's how many times I've watched food. He's in the cremator as a child and now has a chat show as well in, in, in the Czech Republic. So yeah, kind of an omnipresent, one of those omnipresent faces, really. But yeah, just a great face, isn't it, really? <laughs> With that kind of objectification and repurposing of people, there's reminded me a fair bit of Svankmeyer, like, uh, I'm forgetting the name of it now, but the short, he's one of his early short films where the, the fellow gets turned into part of a fence. It's a pretty like loose connection. It was probably my brain just going blah, but it, that for some reason it reminded me of that short of this kind of slow introduction of no, it's fine. We're just gonna everything's fine. We're friends, and we're gonna look after you. And suddenly you're a fence, <laughs> a literal fence, not a uh, underground <laughs> black market fence. That is. <laughs> We've not mentioned the song, have we? The the opening song. Oh my god! Song. <laughs> I the first thing as the credits were rolling, I like turned to my partner and she works in the music industry. Big. We're both in our punk music and crazy stuff, and I was like, this needs to be covered by a punk band now. There's at least one cover of it that I found. It's not punk, though, unfortunately, but yeah, I was doing some searching on, um, I can't remember the name of the website, but it's basically like you can buy MP3s of Czech music, and I found a cover of it. I was just like, okay, well, this will be the end song as we go out, but that song, oh my god, and it just hits you right between the eyes, because it just starts right up, and we are off to the races with this thing. Maybe this is just me, but it it, it, do, it does feel appropriate, because it does sort of sound like restaurant music. It's like the kind of craziest European sort of disco slash restaurant music, isn't it, I think? So I guess it sort of fits well with those animations and with the, you know, the restaurant motif. Again, we talked about Saxana a few weeks ago, talk about a, a score, and then you get this thing. It's just, he knew how to how to do it, how to have some great theme songs to his films. And I think this is Karol Svoboda, isn't it, who, who wrote a lot of the themes for, I think, the Borley Czechs films and for Jindrik Polak's films. And he just has that amazing knack as somebody who I guess was a you know pretty great composer you know just to to i think just to stay on the right side of kitsch really and just to make something that is is just so kind of you know so danceable or sort of you know memorable and you know that's kind of funny but you know still a great tune i found some sort of weird clip of it looked like it was an award show or something and they're playing that song and like going through the audience and these guys are dressed like chefs and I'm just like, what the heck is this? But it was fantastic. <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay, cool. This, this is good. Okay. So I just did a quick uh, bit of research. So the, the short Jans van short I was trying to remember is a uh, Zarada for garden. Oh, yeah. 
and it's written by Jan Spunkmeyer and Ivan Kraus, Jan's brother. And so I don't know whether my brain knew that somewhere or just this is a really bizarre piece of synchronicity. So I want to talk about the ending here. And I mentioned earlier, you know, that things aren't set right at the end of this film. So you've got our main characters screw up once again. And rather than going from old men to their regular age, they end up going from old men into the regular age, but they are what five inches tall. So there's that that's going on. And then, the, uh, Donna Isabella and, um, Marcelica, um, the daughter, they're never put back to their right ages. I mean, I guess they can fix that after the movie is done, but we don't get that resolution of doesn't seem Donna Isabella coming back. Way. Yeah, right? <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. I will say, you're not entirely correct, though, because, I mean, like, Don Carlos gets covered in spinach and licked by our heroes. So I feel like that's actually like a pretty good uh, comeuppance and he does go to prison for attempting to have his uh, sister-in-law turned into lunch. So there's a little bit of resolution, a little bit of positive eat the rich kind of outcome. That works. And the cops are are there for that, which is good, but... Yeah, our our two main characters who we've followed from the very beginning of this film are shrunk. There are some uh, eclairs there, and they decide to hide in the eclairs, I guess because they're cold. I don't know why, but those are picked up by the security-type guard that we saw at the beginning of the film, who drops those and a bunch of other goodies into his bag in order to woo this woman, who I think was the mother from Girl on a Broomstick. She had a very familiar face, and... Yeah, that darn dog, man. Here comes Beethoven. It's like the Beethoven prequel. That image of them in the buns, in the ruffles. It shouldn't be as disturbing as it is, especially for someone such as myself who's definitely seen worse. But when that came on with just their heads sticking out of that cream, like, my whole baby went, no. I have someone I think I need to show this to because I feel like they would scream at that. There's just something very particular about it's everything. I love how they shoot it, too, that kind of high angle looking down on these guys. So you, And you never get close to them when they are that small. So they always look like they're super tiny. There's no close-up of them in the buns, you just see those tiny little heads. And I just keep imagining the two actors in these overly large eclair. They they get pretty close. They get pretty close once they're in there, but yeah, it's, they're still presented as being small, but also, Oh my God. That is one of those moments where I was like, the, they should have. They needed the behind-the-scenes camera person that day. I want to oh, see yeah. the behind-the-scenes footage on that. <laughs> yeah, but also that ties into waste a lot as well, which is another like underlying theme in this. Is you know, don't waste food, don't waste this. They're here to collect the waste paper, and even just like however much of whatever they used to make that scene was a waste. <laughs> that feels like an up yours <laughs> to the communists as well. <laughs> Apparently a lot of the spinach got wasted too, because I, I read a story, which was that the, 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 I think there was like a, an electrical failure and they had all this spinach in fridges and oh, apparently no. it all went rotten. So I think in the scene where 
they're kind of cramming it desperately into their mouths. Apparently that was really sort of smelly, horrible, you know, rotten spinach. And, uh, I think, a, a, a reference in, in Bordichek's memoir to, to Sovak and what he said. And he said, uh, under his, under his breath, or I think like with his hand over his mouth, you know, this, this spinach has been up somebody's ass, apparently. So that's like apparently on, on camera, but yeah, you don't see it because he's covering his mouth well, I think. <laughs> The single worst smell I have ever smelled in my life. And I grew up in the country, so I'm used to like the smell of rotting animals on the side of the road and such. Uh, the single worst smell I have ever smelled in my life was spinach. Uh, my partner at the time had bought a big bunch of it with the roots and everything, and she'd stuck it into this glass of water to keep it fresh. And it was so much of it that it completely sealed. And then she, we were both doing uni or whatever and just forgot about it. And because it was so tightly sealed, no smell came out of it. And then one day I was like, oh, shit, And because it, it looked kind of okay on top and pulled it out. The worst smell I have ever smelt in my life. There is something mm. very particular about spinach gotten wrong. So I, I am feeling that anecdote right now. <laughs> Man, what I would give to read Vorselec's, uh, uh memoir uh, in English, that would be fantastic. Yeah, it's 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 really good. I would say maybe not as good as Hertz's memoir because it's really just a uh, – it's just kind of like, you know, he just goes through like one film per chapter and it's very much just, you know, stories of things that happen, you know, making the film and it's not really one of those kind of like heart and soul type of – Memoirs, but I guess you know for for research purposes, it's really useful because it just gives you the the the, the meat or I guess the dirt on you know everything that happened, and and it's just you know just for kind of like looking at a particular film, it's really helpful because it just gives you you know more or less what happened you know on set and and getting the production ready, and uh, yeah, it, it I, I wish I wish they would translate it. Yeah, maybe I I might try if I'm uh, <laughs> if I uh, if I'm confident enough. I think. <laughs> I mean, you don't have anything else going on, do you? No, not not really. No, it's still locked down here pretty much. So, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think I'll do the Hertz one first, though. I think that's kind of the uh, the masterpiece, really, of, of, you know, sort of Czechoslovak filmmakers' memoirs. That's just like an incredible read, I think. <laughs> but I don't think he mentions this in it, actually. I don't think, uh, yeah, I don't think he, he refers to this in, in Hertz's book. I was kind of surprised by how large a role he played because quite often you know he tends to just pop up and disappear but it's like it's really one of the most important and major characters and i mean it's 77 and i guess he would have been busy i think he would have been he wasn't i don't think he was in one of his periods of uh semi-disgrace i mean i think he was active so uh yeah it does seem quite a a big role for him really because as you say yeah he's usually just there in a little cameo isn't he here and there uh, I just wanted to say, I think in regard to like the, the, the miniaturization, I mean, I think it's interesting because, um, I think one of the genres of comedy that was around in Czechoslovakia was called the, the communal satire. And, uh, I think this film in a way is kind of a mix of a crazy comedy and a communal satire. And that was very much like a, a, a sort of state approved genre where it was all about like satire sort of punching down, I guess, and it was attacking not really attacking the system, but it was attacking, you know, the sort of the little people. It was attacking the kind of petty criminality and things like that. So I think in a way, this film, it almost takes that to this like absurd logical sort of end point because, I mean, they are literally miniaturized at the end. So it's literally, you know, punching down at the little people, isn't it, in that last scene, I guess. 
That's true. Literally demonized. It's really, mm. it's, you know, even, even Don Carlos is so absurd, even as he's trying to have his sister-in-law cannibalized. It's still like silly, but they're, they're, they're just absurd. Uh, but the, the main, you know, the, the, the little people, they, this is just their life. Like they're never made to be like, oh yeah, you're a criminal, but you know, we know what that means in this society. Like you said, you have to steal to feed your family. And so it's never like, oh, it's, it's the wagging the finger of the principal type uh, moralizing, which is easily shrugged off. <laughs> I think Slovak and Menshik are just so sympathetic, aren't they? I just think you can't help but rooting for them, even when Menshik is a Nazi and, you know, they're, they're just always likable presences, I think. Yeah, it is kind of a nice uh, companion piece with uh, Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea because we have so many of the same main characters here. It's like you said, Ben, about it being a family, because that's the sense that I always get. And it's, it's one of the things that in a, in a way reminds me, I think, in a positive way of like the British cinema of the 70s, you know, where you have like the carry on films and you have this sort of, you know, endlessly recycled, you know, sort of uh, cast of people who were like really great actors and often, you know, doing pretty undignified things. But it's just always nice to see them again and again, isn't it? And there is that kind of warmth that you get from that regularity, I think. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot lately about the difference between you know, films that are just made for whatever and films that are made by a family who have stuck together across multiple films and projects and absorbed new people and such, especially with the Suicide Squad recently. Like, there's so much of that. It's just like, oh, this is a big loving family that wanted to give us a big hug at a hard time and not bullshit us. And yeah, yeah, that, that I think it's so important because I think it was maybe thought of a little bit more back when we still had Robert Altman and I think most of the filmmakers in the the West who continue that kind of family tradition definitely work on the more independent, uh, in less discussed outside of festivals um, kind of areas. So, yeah, when watching The Suicide Squad recently and it's just like, oh, yay, let's just hug everyone here. I mean, it's funny because you, you see it with Milos Foreman and it's nice that he kept that going <clears throat> even when he was in America. He, he sort of developed like an alternative, like American family, didn't he? You know, like Danny DeVito and uh, Vincent Chiavelli. And he, he, he kind of did the same thing, which I guess he, he brought over from that sort of, you know, the Czech approach of just, you know, you just cast the same wonderful faces, you know, and even, even like in small roles, you see the same people. And I, the more I watch these films, the more I notice, ah, yeah, that's that guy who was in all these other films, you know, like um, Jerzy Lear, who is the guy who plays the the waiter. I mean, he's just in everything. And because he, ne- he never really has a big role, it's easy to miss him. But, you know, he's just always there somewhere in the background. I think it's a really undervalued uh, aspect of acting because it, it's you get these actors get shuffled around from film to film and they do, you know, they themselves choose different roles and try different things. But if you've got, you know, a director and a writer who are not enforcing is the wrong word, but looking at them and going, I haven't killed you in a film yet, have I? Which is basically the Suicide Squad. (laughs) But that kind of thing where it's like that you feel like they're shuffling the decks of what, that cac- that actor is capable of and it gives them a little bit more ability to push and shove them around and, and gets uh, often infinitely better performances, more realised uh, and 
human and grounded even in absurd films like I won't say Suicide Squad again. All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Get early access to Snake Eyes G.I. Joe Origins on digital today in this action-packed adventure that critics are calling the best G.I. Joe movie yet. The iconic hero Snake Eyes rises to become the ultimate warrior in the battle against Cobra. Buy Snake Eyes G.I. Joe Origins on digital today and get all new special features including a bonus short film, deleted scenes, and much more. Available at participating retailers rated PG-13 from Paramount Pictures. Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at fathermalone.com and on iTunes. You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? That debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way, while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much? Then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider. Now available on your favorite podcast app or at thehollywoodoutsider.com.
That's right. Chicktember continues next week with a look at Uri Hertz's oil lamps. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Ben and Jonathan. So, Ben, what is happening down under, sir? Uh, not a lot at the moment. I'm attempting to save my garden from the ravages of winter, and I'm also attempting to not be one of those people who says he's always going to write the book, and I'm actually going to start writing my book on cannibalism and how it relates to all of this bullshit. The bullshit being the world, not the Czech films. Uh, you know, sometimes. <laughs> Almost. And Jonathan, what's the latest with you, sir? Uh, well, I, I'm currently writing about uh, Czech crazy comedies, uh, <clears throat> and this will be a, a, a chapter for a book on global cult cinema, which I think may be going to publication next year. I think it's very hard to say at the moment, but yeah, hopefully next year. And uh, I also have a piece on Uri Hertz and his work um, at Barrendorf Studios, which is for uh, an edited book on uh, uh, Barrendorf. And that will be, I think, again, hopefully coming out next year. Other than that, I have a few other sort of Czech-related projects in the works. And I'm also going to be working soon on the writer David Bert Mercer and uh, the script that he wrote for the film Morgan with David Warner, because I, I fancied a bit of a change. And uh, so I'm going to be dealing with British cinema. And this is all about David Warner wanting to be a gorilla. And uh, it's all about communism. So I guess not totally out of the same, not totally different universe from the Czech films. Is that gorilla with a U or gorilla with uh, a I should have mentioned the simian kind. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Max Manamore. I was going to say leave it ambiguous, but I'm glad you didn't. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. <laughs>
Episode of the Projection Booth. And as the end credits roll, we wanted to thank you, the listening audience. Here at the Projection Booth Podcast with Mike White, host extraordinaire, Bang. <laughs>